Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for tuning in to Colton Corner, Lafayette's Interfaith Podcast. My name is Lisa Green. I'm a junior and the Interfaith Fellow and the President of Hillel Society here on campus. I'm joined by the fabulous Professor Monica Rice. Um, she's a professor of Jewish studies and Russian and Eastern European studies. Um, and uh, Professor Rice, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself before we jump in? Yes, thank you so much, Elisa, first of all, for inviting me to this podcast. I've heard some of the interviews before, and I was fascinated by the very fact of having a conversation about religion and faith on this campus. I think it's a wonderful thing, and I'm really uh, just very happy that you are doing this for everybody else. Okay, so just that I come from Poland, that's that's really, you could cut it there. Sure. Yeah, perfect. Okay. Um, yeah, that's so interesting. So where in Poland are you from? I'm from the city of Poznan, which was also known as Posen under German occupation mm-hmm. in Western Poland, about three hours um, on a straight line from Berlin. And um, I came here um, 20 years ago, um, moving back with my husband, who's American, and also to study at Brandeis University. Mm. Studies. Yeah, that's so cool. So let's rewind to the very beginning of your life. So you're born in, in Western Poland. Um, and uh, and let's think about your very early experiences. What would you say your faith tradition is? Uh, my faith tradition is Catholic, as for the majority of Polish population. And um, it was a pretty um, consistent, uh, committed um, world of Catholic practices with a, a weekly mass and attending certain other um, um, services and and, and services and uh, practices throughout the year. Mm. Are there any specific masses or memories or holidays that stick out to you from when you were a little kid? Like anything influential? Yeah, I remember my mother taking me during the month of May, which is the month of the Blessed Virgin Mary, mm. to daily... Um, prayers that were mostly really performed by singing. And I remember the beautiful hymns and melodies that we used to sing in a, in a little church uh, near my house, um, near my home, were, um, you know, kind of just giving, giving glory to, um, you know, who venerate as the, as the as mother of Jesus. Um, and also all other traditions. So in youth, I was in several youth groups um, that were church found, founded and church connected, uh, where we would basically meet and have uh, you know something on the <laughs> similar to Hillel here, right? Yeah. We would meet. We would uh, try to deepen our faith, understand it better, and also obviously have this social connection to each other. Mm, that's awesome. So, in terms of your connection with your mom. Um, what did she, what was the message around faith that she gave you? Um, I, I would say, looking back, that this was a kind of very basic um, trust that mm-hmm. you, she, our family, us, uh, will be taken care of. Um, not always in the sense of being successful or being safe, safe from trouble, no, nothing and nobody can guarantee that but there is a person person um, there's really a whole slew of person watching persons mm-hmm. watching over you and uh, interested in your spiritual well-being 
That's beautiful. Was that your church community or, or like God and Jesus? I think it's uh, partly was reinforced by the church community, but uh, most of it was really internal um, experiences of you know, growing in faith. Um, so reading, discussing questions of faith, reading mostly, I would say, Catholic mystics, um, mm-hmm. various religious writers, and uh, kind of doing this partly on my own and partly in the community and discussing with people who had similar experiences, which is very important, I think, in the young age to mm-hmm. have as a kind of support for your own um, spiritual life and spiritual tradition. Right. It's a point of growth for sure. Mm-hmm. Are there specific writers or philosophers do you really appreciate that you took with you? Yeah, I have a, I'd say, whole range of, <laughs> I, I call them really my spiritual friends. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, I believe they're in the um, immortality of, of their souls. So mm-hmm. I believe they exist um, somewhere. Yeah. There'll be the, the big Teresas, Teresa of Avila, mm-hmm. uh, St. Teresa of, um, of Lisieux, uh, Teresa Benedicta of the Cross, who was actually of Jewish origin, um, mm. very interesting persona. And, um, and several others, one of whom, um, one of the saints that I really like is um, Saint um, Joseph Cupertino, who was not famous for any intellectual uh, or character virtue, was actually a man who today would probably call a man who was intellectually challenged, mm-hmm. who had great difficulties, uh, learning difficulties, um, intellectual difficulties and yet um, managed to have faith that really impressed and inspired people around him and I think in some ways that um, you know as somebody working um, in scholarship it's um, it always gives me um, hope that you know the intellectual um, um, skills and the intellectual life is really not everything mm. in some ways in, in some um, possibly in some they mention it's really not important at all about, right you know as far as our humanity there's so much beyond it yeah yeah it's yeah. beautiful are there other lessons maybe from biblical stories or or songs or just any any memories you have from growing up that were kind of foundational in teaching you what your faith meant to you so actually I think I would like to answer this with a story that often reappeared in my prayer life, which is when um, turning to God in situations of big distress and and big turning points in my life, um, almost always I received um, some sort of consolation or uh, very much a reassuring answer um, when reading the Bible. So one of the first um, memories of that experience, um, I don't want to go into details, uh, there, was, there was some difficulty I was going through. It was, I was still a teenager, um, probably early a freshman in high school, I believe. And, um, you know, as a teenager, you feel um, that everything is pretty much ending for you. It's everything is a you know, question of very dramatic <laughs> yeah. uh, changes and challenges. And I remember encountering this, this kind of going through a very difficult period and then 
um, praying and trying to find some sort of um, way out with some, um, you know, God's hand and God's word. And I remember um, basically opening the Bible on the, on the book of Psalms, mm-hmm. uh, Psalm 121, and uh, reading um, the passage that um, says, um, He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Mm. And I remember just feeling very directly that it was really directed to me and that things that were troubling me then um, would be taken care of. And that did happen. Mm -hmm. Um, It doesn't mean that there was always kind of a magical solution to troubles. And there were many um, situations in my life when uh, that solution didn't materialize or not in the way that I expected or wanted. Uh, But I always received um, assurance of a presence watching over me. And that's, I think, connects to that first experience um, that I mentioned from um, the the service to the Blessed Mother. There was this this kind of a feeling of presence and of being taken care of that is really irreplaceable. And in some ways is better than the security that it promises because security and safety is all kind of about us it's Mm -hmm. it's good to have but the presence of somebody else who is this powerful someone who will watch over you is a a greater presence actually yeah definitely it's like a step beyond yeah oh that's beautiful yeah Yeah. do you think about that a lot even now i do because it's Mm -hmm. um, you know we all have obviously uh, life challenges Mm -hmm. uh, life challenges and difficulties and uh, um you know, it, it helps me looking back, kind of looking historically, you know, yes, um, the despair really um, has less and less traction. <laughs> it, it doesn't, looking back at my life and the spiritual support I was uh, always given, it doesn't make sense to to despair. Right. It doesn't mean that there are no doubts and, uh, you know, um, very serious doubts sometimes. But there is this kind of very deep also, um, at the very bottom, there is this big conviction that there is the presence that watches over us. Yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah. Oh, it's so hopeful. So it sounds like that's really been a through line through your life. So as you're emerging from childhood, um, is there a point, you know, when you were going to college, did you ever kind of feel your faith evolving or your beliefs being challenged? Yeah, and it's a good thing to tell you, um, Lisa, these are really intimate questions, very yeah, challenging, yeah. you know, it's very deep, and I appreciate them. It's, it's uh, hard to speak about them, but yeah, I had obviously my faith journey, and it wasn't any straight holy line. I had um, a period of uh, being very much uh, away from the church, angry at church, um, and not really angry, uh, not really living, I would say, my faith, but living definitely the structure and the organization mm-hmm. for several years um, and struggling with my own belonging to that organization, right? Because right. It's, a, it's an organization that organizes our faith to some degree, right? Yeah, in this particular sure. faith, um, with those particular dogmas, with this particular teaching and communal practices mm-hmm. and religious practices. Um, but... Um, 
yeah, it's I had that period of being away, and I also had a, a kind of a way back uh, mm-hmm. in I believe and hope in a more mature way and understanding what could be expected from the human organization or the side of the the human side of this organization Absolutely. and what yeah. could be accepted and should be um, developed on a spiritual level. So when you were in that period of not really, you know, mm-hmm. being with the organization, did you yeah. still feel that connection to a higher power? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. that's what I just said. Yeah. Uh, that the, the faith was there, although it was really questioning the mm-hmm. institution. Right, um, which, right. Uh, you know. But uh, I had this faith, but also, I must say, kind of staying um, on your own wasn't always um, uh, probably very um, productive for me. Um, you know, there's something we, we as humans, we do congregate mm-hmm. to we worship together. There is yeah. a wonderful aspect of that that is just who we are. We worship, right. we need it right, to some degree. And I think um, that's one point where uh, I understand and accept um, the uh, existence of these institutions, which is create, which is full of people like me, very faulty, and people who can be very evil sometimes. That's and yet, right? And yet, there is also a chance of meeting great spiritual masters mm-hmm. and people of deep faith Absolutely. who will help me, who will inspire me and um, who will help me develop this faith. Yeah. yeah, so have you met people like that through church, through your life? Yes, yeah. I must say that was actually in uh, when we were already, apart from the youth experience I had in Poland, um, I also lived for four years in Ireland uh, right after we got married, my husband and I got married. I was teaching there, we lived there, and it was a really beautiful, uh, also religious community. Ireland mm-hmm. is, as you know, also deeply Very Catholic, uh, Catholic. Yeah. Um, although less and less so in recent uh, decades, but it was still very much culturally um, a Catholic country, which means there was a more chance of actually finding more people authentically, deeply yeah. believing. <laughs> so we had a great community there. And then uh, here in America as well, um, I found a really, uh, we had to found, found um, a women's religious, uh, women's mm-hmm. religious um, group. Well, that's fabulous. Which was very, very important for my own faith and also for uh, just coping with uh, life challenges. Right. Yeah. So when you first moved here, um, you lived in Jersey? No, we lived in Massachusetts. I was oh, gosh, you got you. For studies at Brandeis. And then a, a few years after, we moved to, we came to New Jersey. Mm-hmm. Oh, very cool. So what drew you to Jewish studies, though? Well, <laughs> that's a longer story. Thanks for asking me about it. Of course. Well, so first of all, I am Polish and, and Catholic, as you already know. And that, I think predisposes a person to <laughs> to be interested in Jewish topics yeah. because, as we know, um, well, Polish history is inconceivable without understanding mm-hmm. Jewish history and vice versa, I believe. Definitely. So before the war, um, Poland had the greatest, the largest uh, Jewish diaspora in Europe. And obviously it is also the place of its destruction, of Jewish destruction during yeah. the Second World War, during the Holocaust. And both of those things that happened are in the area of Poland, occupied Poland, mm. um, leave a certain political, historical, and spiritual legacy. 
so none of the nobody in Poland and really nobody in Europe, if not the world, is unaffected by what happened uh, during the Holocaust, right? But especially, uh, we have to understand what it means to the people who lived there, who lived side side by side, often fighting, often discriminating against, sometimes living together in more peaceful conditions, that were basically neighbors for about 800 years, uh, to the moment of destruction. destruction. And it's a legacy that is religiously based as well. Obviously, Christianity and Judaism were um, uh, Christianity conceived itself in contradistinction to Judaism, and saw the Jew as the other, the defining other. So all of these things were um, defining for uh, understanding who who a Polish person is, Mm -hmm. and also challenges to how define oneself against this horrifying legacy of the Holocaust that happened on my land. So were you taught about Jewish history in the Holocaust growing up? That's a great question as well, Lisa. (laughs) So growing up under communism, um, uh, you know, finishing my high school in the 90s, uh, we were, uh, it was the, the public acknowledgement of the Jewish heritage and Jewish past was just uh, happened, it was just starting. However, I still was taught this, this big lie that um, six million Polish people died in the Holo- during the Second World War, right? <laughs> Uh, which is technically correct. These were yeah. six million Polish citizens, right. but obviously it, distur- it, it distorts the truth that half of them died as Jews on completely right. different premise and than the other Polish yeah. people, non-Jewish people who died uh, mostly as war casualties, right. so right. horribly persecuted and terrorized, mm. but not very different destruction as the Jewish people were. Yeah, right. so that. Um, that yes, that uh, that was part of the communist, uh, communist legacy, which denied really any ethnic unique, uniqueness to the right, Jews, yeah. and absorbed these Jewish victims in their different so, yeah. nationalities. Right. So so the Soviets died, the French that were killed in Treblinka or Auschwitz, the Poles were, but obviously these were only these were only by citizenship. These right. were all of them were Jews, and that's why they were shipped there. Right. So they would never say, you know, the Jews were killed. And the communism, no. Obviously, wow. it would be the end of eighties, um, and obviously when communism fell, Poland was the first one to actually shed it. Mm. Uh, then, uh, then it became uh, something more acknowledged in official commemorations and official discourse. Uh, however, it was already, you know, in Poland, it was it was some somewhat of an undercurrent. Right. It was not spoken aloud because it was a very difficult le- legacy, but it was known by people. Hmm. So how did you discover that the big lie was happening? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's that's a great question. <laughs> Thanks. Um, so I, um, I actually became interested in, um, in Jewish people and in Judaism by um, wanting to pray and read the original Bible, which I thought was written in Hebrew. <laughs> <laughs> so I um, started to learn first um, uh, Biblical Hebrew and then modern Hebrew. Wow. And from there, um, you know, I realized uh, things that we are being, that we are being. Uh, 
it's not adding up. schools and in education and culture are really denying us of who these people are. And first of all, what I realize is that is my woeful ignorance mm -hmm. of the fact that before the war, you know, ten percent of, of our people were of Jewish origin and right. they're completely unacknowledged. Yeah, just erased. Not commemorated, yeah. erased. Like you didn't know any Jewish people growing up. No. But it's also interesting because there were also it was a tabooized topic and it was almost like a shameful topic. So people would say would say it almost secretly, Oh, he's probably a Jew or she might be a Jew. Yeah implying something that should be, you know, as if it was something shameful, which passed on without knowing and without questioning, well, yeah, why is that a really problem? What yeah. would it mean? At some point, I started to ask those questions, but mm -hmm. no, I did not know any Jewish people who would kind of openly acknowledge it. And right, right. Recognized. So then, so you go, you know, and, and pursue the original Bible, and you read in Hebrew, and then was that the impetus for getting a Jewish studies degree? Well, I actually studied. There was there were no Jewish studies degrees at the time. Oh wow! That's, okay. that's part of this legacy of denial. You had um, you had Hebrew, basically kind of linguistic studies in Warsaw. You had um, um, Institute of Judaistic in Krakow, which dealt with pre-modern times. Yeah. Um, and I I would commute, commute there to take some courses on Hasidism and other uh, courses as well. But uh, I studied anthrop cultural anthropology, which oh, allowed me actually to uh, study uh, different departments, different programs, including Catholic seminary, where Biblical <laughs> Hebrew was taught. <laughs> oh, that's so cool. <laughs> yes. So um, allowed me to um, take those different courses that dealt with Jewish history, philosophy, literature, um, in different departments and kind of create my own um, degree that was not officially right. um, the Jewish studies was in cultural anthropology. Oh, but very interesting. Okay. Yes. And so then you moved to the U.S. and, and pursued higher education after that? or Actually, no. First, we, um, we I got married. We moved first. My, my husband is American. As I said, we moved first to Ireland. Right. Um, I worked there a little bit, um, and then I pursued my doctoral studies in at Brandeis, invited gotcha. by one of the dean of Jewish studies, Jewish body studies, um, Professor Anton Polanski, to apply there. Oh wow! Yeah. So, um, so you pursued your doctorate at um, at Brandeis. Yes. And then mm -hmm. after that, did you stay in the Massachusetts area, or you moved to Jersey after that? Well, actually, no. Yeah, when I was actually doing my doctoral work, we moved to New Jersey. Oh, and I was gotcha. Yeah, but you don't need to be on a graduate level. You don't need to be. You can do it remotely. Writing, yeah, of course. Oh, okay. And research and everything I was actually doing already from New Jersey. And then when did you yeah, finish yeah. your doctorate program? Yeah, in two thousand. 14. Oh, okay. And then I worked uh, on um, transforming my dissertation to a book, um, which came out three years after. That's amazing. And, I didn't know that. Uh, thank you. And, um, and then uh, basically teaching and doing other things also within um, Jewish-Christian relations a little bit. Mm -hmm. First of all, educating myself in various workshops, mm -hmm. um, you know, kind of devoted to exploring interreligious dialogue mm -hmm. in the Jewish-Christian context. Right. And also working in my own parish, even organizing and teaching about yeah. those issues because they are not very well known here. Right. <laughs> no, they're not well known anywhere. They're so yeah. undocumented, you know. So has any part of this kind of discovery of Jewish history and Jewish Christian relations, has that kind of changed 
um, your own faith journey at all? Oh yes, hugely, yeah. I would say, absolutely. Um, so I became interested in this figure I mentioned, um, Edith Stein, who mm. was um, a German philosopher. She was a student of um, Husserl, and um, Husserl, a uh, founder of phenomenology. And he had a very interesting effect on his students, who many of whom tended to convert to Christianity. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it was very, even though he obviously was not in any way um, uh, proselytizer, right? Right. Pros- so um, just happened to very interesting. Yeah, <laughs> right through the philosophy, really, they, mm. many of them uh, converted to some version of Christianity. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. So um, I became interested in her figure because. Um, uh, Pope John Paul II, who had a huge effect on uh, developing Christian-Jewish relations, really opening them up, you know, first visit to the synagogue, recognition of the state of Israel, pilgrimage to the state of Israel, had enormous effect on the development of those relationships. He also canonized Edith Stein, as, um, who was a Jewish philosopher, as I said, of Jewish origin, but not really religious. Mm-hmm. At some point, she converted and actually became a nun, Catholic Carmelite nun. Really? However, she, you know, during the war, she was, um, she hid uh, in the Dutch um, um, convent, but uh, after the uh, um, occupation of Holland by the Nazis, she was deported and died in Auschwitz. Oh, right? So she died on a, in some ways as a Catholic nun because the action he, she, as a result of which she died, was a reprisal against Catholic Church speaking against the discrimination of the Jews in, in Catholic schools. But she died primarily, obviously, as a Jew. And um, it would not happen if she was just a Christian nun. Right, but it would also not happen at this moment if she was a Jew who was not a Catholic. So it's a very so, interesting yeah. confluence of causes of huh, her death. Right. Um, and she became canonized, uh, which means she was uh, became, a, became a, a saint of Catholic Church mm-hmm. um, and by John Paul II. And that really drew my attention also to this very complicated and complex legacy of um, Jewish converts uh, and also of the connections between Judaism and Jewish heritage and, and Catholicism. That's such an interesting evolution. Then mm-hmm. being, being at Lafayette and starting, did you start during COVID? Here? Um, no, well, no, right. I mean, COVID, yeah, it's kind of still. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I started last year, so last fall, exactly. Oh, mm-hmm. I yes. don't know why I thought you'd been here before then. Okay, one year. So, how did the pandemic and being here, has that changed your approach to your own faith at all? Mm-hmm. So, I um, work here, as I said, uh, I, I've been here a year now, and um, we've been here already for a year in person, in person, teaching in person. So in that right. way, COVID wasn't part of this experience, other than masking, which, yeah. which is a huge was a, was also it's a bummer. A huge yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, not in any other way. I did not. We did not have to isolate. We did not have to teach remotely most of the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but is this community kind of? influenced your faith at all? This is very interesting, Lisa, mm-hmm. as well. Um, 
because I was before that I was teaching um, and uh, I was directing an online degree in mm -hmm. in another institution, if mostly for um, adults, uh, not your regular traditional student age mm -hmm. uh, students. This is really the first time I am actually able to participate in um, in a you know the, the life to some degree of. Jewish students, right? Mm -hmm. So like visit Hilar and be aware uh, of what's happening and you know hopefully be to some degree a part of it as well, which I cherish very much. So and um, so this is like the first really time I am I'm able to participate in it. And yeah, during my doctoral studies, you know, I had a young family then yeah. and um, as a doctoral student, you are a little bit more isolated. Uh, this is a kind of undergraduate ex college experience. It's a very different. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's very close knit. Very close knit yeah. and um, really lovely, and uh, you know, um, group of, of young people who are very much still um, obviously in information and trying to find themselves. Mm -hmm. It's a little bit different environment than what I've been exposed to before, even in academia. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Well, that's so interesting. And I, I love hearing about all the different sections and parts of your journey that make yeah. you you. Yeah. Um, so as we wrap up, um, is there anything else you'd like to add? Well, actually, because you asked about that, and I would really hope that there is a way I, I'm, I've been trying to get in touch with um, with uh, the Newman um, Center. Yeah. Is it Newman Center or Newman Society? I don't wanna, I think it's Newman Center. Society is a different sort of uh, organization on campus as well. But it's a Catholic uh, organization. Right, Catholic Newman, students. of course, yeah. And from what I understand, um, it's uh, much less numerous than Hiller, for example, yeah. not meeting as often. Um, I would love to know why, and I would just love to be to some degree a part of it as well. And um, I've heard about some past collaboration between Catholic and uh, Jewish students. Yeah. Um, love to see that happening. I um, Well, I'll tell you what. There's a great mm -hmm. thing we do. We have Interfaith Council right. um, the second mm -hmm. Wednesday of every month. Yes. So that's definitely where it happens the most. Uh -huh. um, and we've been talking about, I'm hoping we can get this to happen either this year or next year, mm -hmm. you know, before I graduate. Uh, we'd like to do a spring faith crawl, so where we go to each other's religious spaces and talk about like Easter and Passover and everything that's happening around the yes, same time, yes. mm -hmm. and uh, you know, and we go to the Muslim faith space on campus and talk about Ramadan, yeah. just all of the spring faith activities. Um, so definitely, yeah, I I would like there to be that relationship there because I think everyone who's a person of faith on this campus is someone I'd like to know, for mm -hmm. sure. Yeah. That sounds wonderful. I'm, yeah, I'm definitely. You know, if, if faculty is invited. <laughs> totally, to, of to course, of course. And, uh, and participate in it as well. It's yeah. wonderful and needed um, collaboration and experience. So because once you leave this, this campus as an adult, right? Yeah. <laughs> Launching into very different experiences. That's crazy. Yeah. It's well, hard to recreate this wonderful connections that you can forge here. It's a great environment. Yeah. And, you know, it's so special. I'm also thinking back to Hillel. Yeah. Um, about a week and a half ago, hosted this bat mitzvah formal. Mm -hmm. yes. um, and a few members from Newman came. 
and were so wonderful, so engaged, came up and looked at the Torah scrolls. Uh Um, And it was really cool to have them. So you're inspiring me. So anyone from Newman, if you're listening, we love you. I'll be reaching out soon. (laughs) And we'd love to connect. Awesome. Well, Professor Rice, thank you so much. Can't thank you enough for being here. Great, great pleasure, Lisa, and you really ask a wonderful, (laughs) probing, deep question. (laughs) Thank you so much. Awesome, and thank you for listening. Thank you.